Hello there, and welcome to another episode of my uh, weekly podcast, The Break. I'm Father Roderick, and we've got a lot of stuff to talk about, and I'm very excited about the new season of The Mandalorian. I won't talk about spoilers, obviously, but there are some very, very intriguing religious elements that we can talk about. This episode of The Break is brought to you thanks to my wonderful community of sponsors, of donors, people that help me pay the bills and support me in my mission to reach out to Star Wars fans and fans of popular culture all over the world. People that may never come across uh, the path of uh, a priest, but that's why I'm doing the work that I do. I can't do it without that financial support of my sponsor. So if you want to join uh, that community and help me also, if you're able to check out patreon.com slash father roderick and uh, last week we can we uh, could welcome a new patron and or patron i should say and that's lisa rutledge i hope i pronounced that correctly and uh, she became um a a monthly donor uh at the lowest tier there are different tiers with different perks so if you want to join lisa and uh, all the other patrons then again take a look at patreon.com slash father roderick do you know what's going on this is what's happening in your world they said catholics rule we got boston south america the good part of ireland and we're making serious inroads in mozambique baby you've taken your first step into a larger world at the beginning of each show, I always talk a little bit about what's going on in the world. Sometimes it's about news. Sometimes it's about stuff that I'm excited about. Sometimes it's about personal things happening. Um, just yesterday, uh, I, I, I saw the footage of the, the horrible train crash that happened, I think, during the night in Greece. A, a terrible tragedy where two trains were on the same track, speeding towards each other for 15 minutes. And they ended up, one was a uh, passenger train, the other one was a, an industrial train. They crashed into each other at, at high velocity, and um, there are more than 40 people dead. It's, it's a terrible uh, tragedy. And that it comes on the heels of, of this, uh, um, this train crash in the United States. With um, That was actually a derailment um, where an entire town was affected by all the toxic waste or not waste, but the toxic whatever this train was transporting. And so, uh, since I live in a country with a very, very high density of train traffic, you immediately think, could that happen also in the Netherlands? And obviously, wherever things move at high speed, uh, carrying either passengers or, or industrial wares there is always a certain risk, just as if you step onto a plane, there is a very minimal but a real risk that something might go wrong. Now, un uh, of course, if you look at the percentage, that, uh, then, then, then it's very, very tiny. Uh, flying an airplane or flying on an airplane is actually one of the safest methods of transportation. But so are trains. But it does matter where you are traveling. Uh, because not every country has uh, the same safety measures. Now, thankfully, in the Netherlands, uh, we, we've been uh, we've been working on our train system for for more than a century now, and we've become very good at this. This is probably because we're a very tiny country with, uh, relatively speaking, a lot of people that need to be transported. And so in order to maximize the little space that we have, we we have a very dense 
network of trains, train tracks. Uh, but we also invest a lot. Our, our government has been investing for, for decades very heavily into, uh, into constantly innovating um, uh, the available, um, what, whatever we have available for, for train traffic. And so um, a disaster like the one we saw in the United States a couple of weeks ago and the, this latest one in Greece, um, it's, it, it, it's very obvious that that also has to do with um, not enough safeguards uh, also the whole system being um, being outdated that seems to be the problem in in Greece either it's human error or or it may be a technical fault um, but a, a system should be able to survive human error that is why you have all this very advanced technology now in our Dutch train system where you can't have two trains on the same track without them alerting each other and without alerting the people that are overseeing this. And so it, it, it never completely gets rid of the, of the risks, but there is so much more possible today thanks to GPS and all, all sorts of other technology um, than, than a couple of decades ago. But of course, not every country has makes these same investments in their train system. And if you travel Europe by train, you will you will notice the differences. Even in, in the frequency and the reliability of uh, the train system. Um, sometimes you have countries where a lot of different parties are competing against each other. Now that has its downsides. Um, so sometimes you, ha you have to check out from, from one a company and check in with another company so it uh, sometimes creates a little bit of a headache but having that competition also guarantees a certain they have to talk to one another and so there's a lot of information that is exchanged plus the competition itself also pushes these companies to do their do their best whereas in in a lot of other countries um, the, the train system is like state-owned and uh, there doesn't seem to be much incentive to invest especially in in areas of a, of the country that are you know not as populated not as densely populated they they tend to forget about those those parts and then of course uh, risk can increase in the united states is even more dramatic from what i've heard uh compared to um air traffic traffic by train is extremely underdeveloped a lot of the trains and the whole system is decades old um, and, and it's a bit of a, the chicken and the egg because the system is so old-fashioned, because traveling by train is expensive and slow and not very reliable all the time. Um, not many people use trains, and so that doesn't give the, the, the train companies an incentive to invest and to innovate. Um, so sometimes it, it, it takes, unfortunately, a disaster like the ones that we've seen recently for people to realize that, well, wait a minute, this is not just about making money, this is about safety, this is about uh, protecting people um, against disasters like this. And then, and then sometimes things start to move. But I wish that more countries would be forward-thinking. One of the things that I love about um, our train system here in the Netherlands is it's very um, easy to travel by train, it's relatively cheap. I think uh, a country like Germany, it's sometimes even cheaper. Um, plus, when I take the train, I'm actually really 
protecting the environment because our trains do not run on regular electricity, um, but on wind energy. So this country, of course, is very flat. There's a lot of wind. We have a lot of um, wind farms. And uh, um, our, our train system, so all the electricity that runs the trains, is powered by wind energy. So it is actually a better alternative compared to uh, taking a car um, and maybe even riding a, like an electrical bike, although that, of course, is also a very, very... Um, uh, that's a good way to, to move around because you move, so it's, it's good for you, for your health. And uh, a lot of the electrical bikes that are super popular in my country um, don't use that much power. However, not every household already has green energy. So I, I guess taking the train is probably one of the, one of the best ways to protect uh, the environment. And um, it, it just goes to show how profitable it can be to invest also in... In, in natural energy or at least energy from natural sources like wind and water uh, and, and solar energy. Let's not forget about that. That's also on the rise. And the more, it, the more economical sense it makes to invest in all these new technologies, the more it becomes its own, its own motivator and, and more and more people will make that energy transition. It's like just a, an hour ago, I, I saw a, um, a short video from uh, an Italian master chef or a cook uh, who is um, teaching people on TikTok how to cook Italian cuisine. And he got a lot of comments because in his restaurant, he only cooks with induction. He doesn't use natural gas. And for a lot of foodies, that is the ultimate sin, you know, induction. That's for... That's for people who don't know how to cook, but you cannot really pretend to be uh, a restaurateur or you know a chef if you're if you're cooking with with induction. You need the flames around the pan, and he deconstructs that entire reasoning. He says, "No, in fact, cooking with gas is very expensive because you need to invest in not just." the stoves and, and cleaning the gas stoves is a ton of work. So that costs a lot of, um, of money. You know, my, my people who could be cooking for another hour instead have to invest that hour of work cleaning the stoves every day. And then every week there is this deep clean. So you save that with induction. Plus you save a lot of energy because the energy goes straight from the induction plate to the pan. There is nothing that leaks. And in addition, he says, we don't have to invest in like all these safety uh, precautions and like um, uh, fire, um, how do you say, fire control, so sprinklers and that sort of stuff, because induction is much more safe. You take off the pan, I have that in my kitchen as well, the thing shuts down, so there's not much risk of fires. And, um, and then finally, it's also much better for the health of the people that work in the kitchen because all that gas, all that, all those flames and all that energy that leaks normally in old-fashioned cuisine is, is heating up the space and that makes it a very uncomfortable temperature to work in. Um, and, of course, because you're burning stuff, it also releases a lot of like micro elements in the air that the people that work in the kitchen are breathing in. And so there's much more research nowadays that, that shows how, how dangerous that can be. And so uh, I, I thought it was a wonderful video to hear that from a chef. And he says it does not impact the taste or the quality of the food. If it impacts the taste, you are just not a good cook. You don't know how to handle the induction uh, plate. But 
it, it's absolutely the same thing that you can do, um, uh, whether you're work, working with gas or induction, but it's so much cheaper and it's so much, much healthier. Um, I think that ultimately we're all going to 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 migrate to newer forms of energy you see that also in the automotive industry you know people switching to electrical cars um and and it's we're still at the beginning of this entire transition but i think it's going to happen because it it not only does it take like goodwill but it's also oftentimes especially now it's getting economically much more um much cheaper actually to use natural resources uh, or let's say like wind energy solar energy compared to uh, fossil fuel and and of course geopolitically it's also showing the benefits you know one of one of the ways in which uh, putin can can keep financing his war in ukraine is because he is sitting on so many fuel fo fossil fuels and and he's he's been selling that for for many years to the west but if we are going through this energy transition, that will leave a lot of these very powerful countries now that are powerful because of all the oil that they have and the gas that they have, it will basically also get rid of that, of that hold, that grip on other elements of our society. And so it, it could have massive impact on the way that we, that we run this planet. So anyway, just wanted to uh, to share that with you following um the news about these these train accidents in in greece and in the united states <clears throat> let's hope that our world keeps developing safer alternatives for the way we are running things right now um and then <laughs> on a more personal note for me one of one of the big changes this week is the return of the mandalorian i'll be talking about that in the tv and uh, and movie segment in in just a minute um, but for me, it wasn't just a return of a, one of my lo beloved television series, but it's also almost like a return to norma normality. So yesterday evening, I did like a live stream, uh, a watch a viewing party. Uh, so I've, I streamed an image of myself watching the first episode of season three of The Mandalorian. And uh, today I've been thinking about maybe creating some podcasts and some video material based on The Mandalorian and it's so inspiring to to be able to talk about something you know new in in the realm of star wars and and watching this new material just triggers my creativity and um and it's by kind of going back to that routine that i used to have in the past like commenting on star wars episodes every week um that 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 reminded me how much i've been missing that over the past few months so the return of the mandalorian in a certain ways for me also a return to normality i do not like movies they're predictable like the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and darth vader is luke's father not liking movies is like not liking puppies they're fine i just get bored and never make it to the end you know you need a movie education you need a movication I'm going to give it to you. So Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, and Grogu, a.k.a. Baby Yoda, they're both back in the first episode of the third season of The Mandalorian, probably the flagship television series for Disney+. It's something that every Star Wars fan 
loves and and wants to see uh, and we've been waiting for for new episodes for more than a year in the meantime we've had the book of boba fett which had especially one episode that was entirely focused on the mandalorian and on grogu and what happened in between uh the second season and this third season that just premiered so that's a must watch episode even if you haven't seen much of the book of boba fett you can skip all that and just watch that one episode featuring the mandalorian and grogu to catch up with what happened and now we are learning that actually baby yoda grogu has stayed with a certain jedi teacher for for about two years um, before he returned to uh, to Din Djarin. So uh, I won't talk much about spoilers in this episode of The Break because I want to give you the chance to watch the episode for yourself. Um, but there's one thing that struck me in, by watching this first episode, um, and, and that's how much religious like explicit religious symbolism there was in this first episode. Very, very well integrated with the overall lore of Star Wars. But I keep uh, being surprised by how much they're leaning into all these biblical stories that clearly forms the... I'm not sure the the subtext or the context of, of these stories... Um, and that religious aspect of all, has always been very prominent in Star Wars. But I'm, I'm just loving how much it, it really helps them tell the story and talk about uh, universal themes that, that, that are, in a certain way, about our lives as well. Um, it, it's pretty unique. You, you, you sometimes see religious elements in, in other works of science fiction and fantasy, but not as explicit as in Star Wars. I wonder if that has to do with the maybe Catholic background of the main writers, Dave Filoni and, um, and John Favreau. I wouldn't be surprised if that is part of that, or at least their, their Catholic heritage. Um, but uh, it could also be because they, they know that this has always been part of the fabric of Star Wars. And so they, they choose to, to keep integrating those, those elements in the story without you know, it being a vehicle for, for religious pro, pro, proselytism. Uh, Star Wars is not there to evangelize people. But I, as a Catholic, obviously, and a priest, I, I love these connections because I think it's these old stories, the biblical stories, the wisdom that is contained in these stories, the wisdom of thousands of years of, ex of religious experience and, and just human experience, it, they deserve a new platform. They deserve a translation into the visual storytelling language of today. So I'm super excited about that. I will go more in depth in the next segment, the, the, the religious segment of this show, to talk about one particular element in this first episode of the of the third season of the mandalorian um but stick around to discover what that religious element is and why i think it's so important to talk about it um, but let's first talk about some other stuff that i watched this past week um i was again very impressed and excited about the second episode of the third season of star trek picard i can't be happier that Two of my most favorite franchises are back and more alive than ever, Star Wars and Star Trek. And this third season of Picard is miles better than, than the previous two seasons. This feels like the, 
like the Picard series they should have done from the beginning. It's almost as if this third season is a total reboot. It's like, okay, let's forget about what we did with the previous two episodes, previous two seasons. I mean, they were okay, but I never really loved them the way I love this third season. And it kind of works as a standalone thing. And it's so much more cinematic. Everything works. So what changed? Why couldn't they do that for the first two seasons? It, I will always ask myself that. But this feels like classic Next Generation stuff. It's got all the good writing, the jokes, the, the tension, the special effects. It's, it, the music is so fantastic. You hear, hear all the classic themes. It's glorious. And it's a, it's a pretty good story so far. Um, and uh, I've heard that the third episode, which I think it will be uh, will be published tomorrow, so on Friday, I'm recording this on Thursday, um, is even better than the first two. So I, pff, so exciting! And I can't wait to see um, if they are going to move forward with what they're setting up here in Picard. Of course, obviously, it's the last season of Picard, and I don't think they should be bringing back these now <laughs> retired actors. But I do believe that this 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 style, this this storytelling, has a future. So I wonder if this last season of Picard is going to set up something for the next next generation. Why not? Um, I, I heard rumors about them setting up a, like a spin-off series with uh, with Worf and 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 what's her name, Rhea, Rina, Rira. That. <laughs> It's the one actor that I I don't care for that much, or the one character I should say. I don't know the actor, of course, but the, or the actress. But uh, yeah, no, don't. <laughs> I would say that would again. It would start to dilute stuff. You would. I, I mean, I, I think I think that at one point you need to dare to. Start to wrap up things. Just like Star Wars, you can't just keep reviving these old characters. Um, it's time for something new. For Star Wars, it is also time... The Mandalorian, in a certain way, even though it, it, it precedes the events in the sequel movies, but it is a whole new story thread introducing lots and lots of new characters and the occasional cameo. But it's, it is definitely a... a continuing sto the storytelling tradition with new characters. And I think that Star Trek has already done a, f a little bit of that with, uh, with Discovery and more recently also with The Strange New Worlds. And, um, so, and it's not just about you know, going forward in time. It doesn't have to be future stories. It just has to be about different people and, I don't know, different stories. So um, yeah, let's let's hope they're not going to do like really cheap spin-off series from Picard. I, I think if if they want to do a new series, do something completely new. Give us a next generation in the same way that the the next generation was such a renewal and a reboot to a certain extent of the original Star Trek series. Discovery didn't do it for me. Um, Strange New Worlds works really well, but is still a bit you know, tapping into our nostalgia. Um, yeah, well, well, we'll wait and see. One thing that is not moving forward, at least according to uh, Chris Pine, who, who played Kirk in the alternate timeline, the J.J. Abrams timeline, 
his that timeline, Star Trek Four in, in in the J.J. Abrams timeline, is apparently not moving. Not not do, there's nothing. There's no communication. So I'm thinking it's probably that's the end of it. These actors are getting too old for their roles now, and 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 many of them have already found other jobs. So and and now that the original Star Trek television series um, that they're producing for for their uh, online content are doing so well, what's what's the impetus of doing another sequel to the J.J. Abrams timeline? You know, would, would that get Star Trek fans excited, more excited than they are currently about what's what's on, t- on TV? I, I don't think so. I would say it makes much more sense to do a movie spinoff of Strange New Worlds, for instance. I think that 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 series shows the most promise. But yeah, maybe they should, what they could do, that's something, but I don't think they will do this, is to wrap up the J.J. Abrams timeline with a television series. That I would watch. But then these actors are way too expensive for television. <laughs> that's, that's the whole problem. I, I read this in an interview with um, Tony Gilroy, who wrote Andor. He said for the first season, for that whole prison break uh, sequence or these two or three episodes about the prison break they want to get Andy Serkis um, but they also immediately realized that's going to be very expensive and it was very expensive because Andy Serkis does big movie projects he's oftentimes like a director himself or a second unit director um, he is of course one of the most accomplished mocap actors uh, voice actors um, yeah he wants to be, to get paid you know based on on his previous work in 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 movie uh, in the movie business um and so we never take that into account we we as fans we like to theorize well why don't they just hire all the people from the original cast of the of the theatrical releases of the jj abrams timeline and just let them do television you know most of them have outgrown television in terms of their of their worth and so it, it would be cost prohibitive. It's much cheaper to do new stuff with relatively unknown actors that you can hire for much less money. Anyway, we'll see. I'm, I'm just enjoying what I get. And uh, we, can always, we can always dream about what we will maybe get. But I'm not, you know, we're, there, some, some fans are so entitled. And they, they always are angry and they express their rage on the internet. Why don't... I get what I want and what I deserve. That's kind of the uh, also like a, a, like a, an undercurrent of their attitude. And I'm thinking, you know what? That's not how it works. We get what we get, and we can we can tell the creators what we like by watching it, by consuming the content, because that's the clearest sign that we want more of that. So watch what you like. Don't procrastinate. I, I sometimes do that. I was like, okay, the what is it, House of the Dragon? I will watch that some other time. But the thing is, I also do that with with series that then don't do very well in the ratings. And so Netflix or Amazon Prime, they, they say, well, we're not going to do a second season. Nobody's watching this. And I'm like, well, well wait a minute. I was going to watch this. This was on, on my to-watch list. No, this is why it's important to to stay on track with uh, the new stuff. And you you show the studios what you like by watching it right now uh, and so I've, I've been doing my part um, as I 
told you last week, I'm using Tracked to keep track of everything I watch, but also to incentivize me to keep track of, of newer series. And so I've watched um, episode 11 of The Bad Batch called Metamorphosis. Um, that wasn't felt like another more or less standalone episode about a like a it start. I like the style. It felt a bit like um, Alien or Aliens. Uh, it started almost like a horror science fiction horror movie, and then uh, it turns out, of course, it you know there's more to this monster that's lurking in the shadows. I I actually really enjoyed this episode, um, but of course, it's not as epic and mythological um, in overall storytelling compared to uh, The Mandalorian or, or Andor. But I, I like it. There's only a few episodes left, which reminds me that I have to do uh, another like uh, summary podcast for my patrons. Um, I do the, the show Story Secrets, and uh, I, I wanted to do a, a discussion of The Bad Batch, but in, in like clusters of five episodes because these this show is very short it's like every episode is 25 minutes so i just usually put a few episodes together do some commentary and then wait a couple of weeks before i do the rest so um if you're if you're a patron uh wait for it i'm going to record that as soon as i have time to sit down and um and jot down some notes and then i tried out another series that i just saw on the entry screen or the introduction screen of um i think it was amazon prime and it's called Truth Seekers. And I just watched the first episode, and it's really good. So it's, um, I think it's a British series, um, and it tells a story about this guy who works for um, a repair company, and um, he gets calls to help people fix their TV because the reception is bad. And, but he's a bit of a, a loner. He's, he's a really nerdy guy big beard thick glasses and he has that as a day job but in his spare time he's also a paranormal investigator so he's like a ghostbuster type of guy he even has like a machine that is able to to detect ectoplasm or something like that a very very ghostbusters <laughs> type of uh, of hobby and um sometimes d during his daytime job he comes across situations where he feels oh there's something more there's something paranormal going on here and then he he goes and he explores and he films himself uh so apparently he has a youtube channel and he he tells people you know what i just heard this sound we're going to explore if there may be paranormal uh stuff going on here and um, in the first episode, he meets this other guy who works for the same company who is really scared out of his mind every time there is something that remotely, you know, could, could be paranormal. Uh, but he's, he's, um, he still follows in the footsteps of this other guy um, to, to explore. I thought the first episode was both very scary and like, oh my gosh, it's, it's, they do a good job using all the tropes from, from horror movies. And at the same time, it's very, very funny. It, it's always a bit tongue in cheek. You know that this is a comedy, uh, but it's, it's also pretty scary. It's, 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 it's a wonderful combination. Sometimes like with food, when you're cooking, you have these weird taste combinations. Like some people love like, um, sweet and sour which are normally tastes that you want to separate because you, you know sweet and sour but somehow 
if it's really done well, the combination just works. Or like chocolate with sea salt. That, that was all the rage a couple of years ago, like caramel sea salt. And you would eat a chunk of chocolate. Some people hate it. Some people love it. I tend to belong to the second group. I, I really like that combination. So you're, you're munching on a piece of chocolate. I shouldn't be talking about chocolate because it's Lent, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm just helping you to be even more virtuous by resisting this pull of that last bar of chocolate that's somewhere in your cupboards and you want to get it, but you think, no, it's Lent. I'm not, I'm going to offer it up. Anyway, so you're munching on this delicious milk chocolate bar and then and then you've got these salt crystals like sea salt and it, it just gives this gives it this extra sparkle and it makes it more exciting to eat chocolate to eat that entire bar of chocolate you see what i'm doing here and uh, <laughs> it just works and it's like who would think of mixing chocolate with salt someone did and then it worked. Well, that's how I feel about truth seekers. It's like two genres, like comedy and scary stuff. And, it, and sometimes, every once in a while, it goes together so well. A, a bit like Ghostbusters, although that was definitely leaning more to the comedy side, whereas truth seekers leans more into the kind of scary movie side. But you need that humor, which always provides you with that release of, like, tension you're watching something scary and then there's this this dry remark that has me in stitches i love it it's like these little i these little salt crystals in your in your chocolate anyway are you hungry yet <laughs> catholics rock It's time for a short visit to The Peculiar Bunch, and this is the place where you can ask anything you always wanted to know about Catholics and their traditions, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And as promised, today I want to talk about one very specific religious theme in the first episode of the third season of The Mandalorian. Which one is it? Man... You guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. So again, no spoilers, but I want to talk in depth about one particular theme. If you watch the episode or you've already watched it, you will recognize it instantly. And that is the motive or the theme of baptism. It's very, very predominant in this first episode. And it had already been announced in towards the end of season two of The Mandalorian. Just a recap. So this contains a few spoilers, but you've had your time to watch that. <laughs> but um, uh, Din Djarin, so The Mandalorian, has been excommunicated. He used to be part of a very observant tribe of Mandalorians. So the, the Mandal Mandalorians are the followers of the Mandalore. The Mandalore is the, is the leader of the Mandalorians. And it is actually a leader that can change over time. There's one requirement. He has to own the Darksaber. So the, the owner of the Darksaber is the Mandalore. And the Mandalorians are the followers of that. It's kind of like the Pope of the Mandalorians. The, the one with the black, the, with the, yeah, the Darksaber. So, <laughs> and, um... In, throughout history, of course, the Mandalorians, it's a very old 
uh, group of people, um, they they are divided into various tribes. You can even see the markings on their armor uh, up until, well, I would say up until this day, but Star Wars takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But you get my the gist of what I w- want to say. So, And these tribes, I think, are clearly um, playing on the theme of the tribes of Israel. So there's one people of is one people it's called the people of god it's israel but it's it's divided over these various tribes and so the a lot of the biblical narrative is about how can can we keep these tribes together or reunite them in case they have fallen apart so this whole when jesus is praying for unity he's not just praying for the 12 apostles there that they will keep together and not fight about, you know, who sits next to Jesus in the kingdom. But (laughs) these apostles themselves are representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why we have 12 apostles. And so when Jesus prays for unity, it is a prayer that joins that centuries-old desire and quest for unity among the tribes of Israel because God wants his children to be one family instead of you know one against the other so the entire biblical narrative is one of seeking unity there where that unity has been somehow broken now this is exactly what happens in in the Mandalorian and in Star Wars in general it's all about the evil forces that trend tend to break people apart, oppose people, use force. And the only way, the only logic for evil in the Star Wars universe is to use oppression and military force to keep people together. Whereas in the, on the light side of the force, it is it, people find each other because of friendship, because they work together, because they... They have empathy for one another. And it, it, all Star Wars stories are about those two different approaches to unity. And what Princess Leia tells um, Governor Tarkin in the first movie that was written by, by George Lucas, in a certain way, was the blueprint for all the stories that came afterward. And it's the more you tighten your, gr- your grip, the more... Uh, these these systems will slip from your fingers. The more power will slip from your fingers. So in in a certain way, what is this? It's my f- my watch talking to me. <laughs> Siri was thinking I was talking to. I need to turn this off. Like whenever I lift this watch, uh, I I put my wrist up into my face. <laughs> it's it immediately launches Siri and and starts thinking that I I want to know stuff. No, anyway. So. Um, the, the 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 more you tighten your grip, the more systems will slip from your fingers or through your fingers. This is this is kind of what we learn from the very first story of Star Wars is that trying to bring people together with force never works. It accomplishes the opposite. Force divides, or or you know, uh, uh, true unity comes through a shared friendship. Shared ideals also, a shared belief. Star Wars is all about, you know, these rebels. What is their strength? It's not military strength. It's not numbers. But it is a common belief in the force. And that a little bit of the force, I would say in biblical terms, like a 
a, a, a tiny seed, like a mustard seed of the force, can already make you more powerful than thou a thousand armies. This is also what Obi-Wan Kenobi tells Darth Vader on the Death Star right before he dies. If you kill me, I will become more powerful than you can even imagine. And so it's, it's like sacrifice, which is an act of love, gives more power than killing someone, which is the same contradictory logic that is used constantly in the Bible and especially in, in the Gospels, where Jesus is proving in, in his death and resurrection that sacrificing your life, that which is the ultimate act of love, um, is so powerful that it can even defeat death. And so Star Wars is about seeking unity, and, um, and, and that is also the predominant theme in the Mandalorian. So the problem is that uh, Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, is presented to us as a very faithful Mandalorian. He's, he's part of the, let's say, the very observant, orthodox, uh, somewhat conservative branch of, the, of Mandalorians, whereas uh, Bo-Katan is um, leading uh, uh, the majority, I think, of the Mandalorians, where they are much more kind of more modern in their approach and a lot of the stories are not to be taken literally and a lot of the rules and regulations, you have to look at what they actually want to protect and not take it literally. And so, for instance, one of the old rules of being a Mandalorian was once you've received your helmet, which is part of your introduction into the tribe that you belong to, you never take it off. Never, ever. because And I think the, the real reason for that is that you cannot just stop being a Mandalorian. Faith is all-encompassing. It's not a nine-to-five thing. So being a Mandalore is like me. Like being a priest is not something I switch off at the end of the day only to switch it on during work hours. No, I am a priest it, ontologically, I would say. It's part of my being, and it will be part of my being until eternity. Um, and so that is something that is expressed ritually in the, in the culture of the Mandalorians by this prescription of never to take off your helmet, because that would signify that you can turn it on and off as you take off your helmet, so now I'm not a Mandalorian, I put it on again, now I'm a Mandalorian. So the observant tribes say, well, no, you can't do that. In fact, if you take off your helmet, that's a sign, that's an act of automatic excommunication. We, we actually have that in canon law in the Catholic Church. There are some things that if you do them, you are um, excommunicated, as they say in Latin, late sententiae. Which means the sentence is dropped right there and then. You don't need a judge. You don't need a bishop or a pope to say, hey, you are no longer part of the Catholic Church, which means you're out of the communion with the Catholic Church, ergo excommunicated. No, there are certain things, if you do them, it's immediate excommunication. Of course, there's always the possibility to return. And so certain punishments, if, if you... <laughs> Uh, break canon law, um, the punishments themselves are not retrib retribution or vengeance. No, they are actually exercises in a certain way. They're ways to repair the damage and to show the rest of the community that you want to make amends. 
And so uh, this is how you have to look at punishments in the Catholic Church. There's always, uh, every punishment has the built-in hope that this, puni- it, it is a punishment. It's not to, it's meant to be fun, but it is meant to make you think and to make you convert and to repent and to ask, seek forgiveness. This is exactly what happens also in The Mandalorian. When Din Djarin takes off his helmet, he knows that he is breaking the rules. He's breaking his vow. And that vow is done the moment you become a Mandalorian. There's this baptismal ceremony where you receive your helmet to never take it off in public again. And those vows are enunciated. Um, And so it is a solemn vow. It's like similar to the vows that I made as a priest when I was ordained or Actually, even before I was ordained a priest, when I was ordained a deacon, I already made a couple of vows that are binding for the rest of my life. And so, uh, similar here in the culture of the Mandalorians, the vow of never taking off your helmet is one of those existential vows. If you break them, you know that you are excommunicated right away. And so, at one point... Our Mandalorian, Din Djarin, has good reasons to take off his helmet in public, to protect Grogu, to protect his friends. So it is this kind of strange conundrum that he knows that if he takes off his helmet, he's betraying everything he stands for, his faith. But he's also doing that out of love. So it's a, it's a sacrifice in a way. He, he doesn't just take off his helmet because he's an apostate. That's how he's been labeled by his fellow Mandalorians. It's also, uh, coincidentally, the title of this first episode. But he does it to save others. So you could say he is damning himself in order to save others. It's, it's in a certain way, it's very Christ-like. You, know, you condemn yourself, or you let yourself be condemned, just like Jesus was condemned by uh, the the Pharisees and then later on also by the Romans and he was made to uh, suffer on the cross, but he did it to save his friends, to save mankind. So did Jaron here. Same situation, he has taken off his helmet for something that he values more than his own life and his own future as a Mandalorian. But he now has a chance to return to somehow go through a second baptism. This is also in this in the second season, or actually this is in that one episode of the of, of the book of Boba Fett that I mentioned earlier, where he learns that there is a way for him to be uh, in communion again with the Mandalorians and with their faith, and that is by by bathing in the in the the waters of Mandalore, which is kind of like a metaphor of a baptismal font in a certain way. So you have to go to the depths of Mandalore and immerse yourself in the water and rise from the water, reborn and, and, and readmitted into the community. So this is very prevalent in this first episode of The Mandalorian um, in, in many different ways. There's symbolism of water. I won't go into specifics. There is also the, this, the dual nature of water. It's both a source of rejuvenation and rebirth it's also a, a symbol of death and danger. And it is escaping the waters 
and everything it harbors that is also in a certain way part of the symbolism of baptism. So it's not just... When I explain baptism to the other children present during a baptism, I, I, of course, talk about, you know, you need water for your plants. If you don't give them water, they will die. If we don't drink water, we will die. But there is also this other aspect of water where it can be dangerous. You can drown in water. Water is also a symbol of death. This is why in the gospel, Jesus is walking across the lake towards the boat. It's not just a, a trick to, to show that he's the master Jedi of the bunch, you know, he's, he's the son of God, so he can walk over water. No, this is a very specific um, prelude to the resurrection. Jesus shows that he can walk over the symbol of death and drowning. And he's, he's above it as he will ultimately rise above death in the resurrection. And so... Uh, that that is very uh, prominent in the first few scenes of this first episode, but then it continues later on in the discussion, uh, and and also the one of the main themes of this third season is Din Djarin seeking to be in a certain way relive this baptism to come back to his faith. Uh, he. He didn't want to leave his faith. It was a consequence of him sacrificing himself, outing himself by taking off his helmet, but it was for a greater good. And then, but he still wants to abide by the, the, the ritual rules of his faith. Um, and then uh, there is also a very subtle symbol, and I can't really say, tell you what it is. It has to do with, a, with big creatures at one point kind of halfway through the episode. And these big creatures, this big creature that refers to uh, at least elude or, uh, I don't know, hints at, at, at a creature that is often associated with baptism. And that's a whale. The, and why is a whale uh, also linked to the whole symbolism of baptism? You see this also in iconography throughout the centuries. Um, it's because of this story of Jonah and the whale. So Jonah, at one point, is thrown overboard because the people that he travels with accuse him that his uh, lack of faith is actually the reason that they get in trouble, so they throw him overboard. And then Jonah is swallowed by this whale and, and exits the whale three days later, and he's still alive. And I was in Tuscany uh, last summer, and we were visiting this monastery, and they had these beautiful tapestries. And one tapestry in particular showed two scenes. One was this scene where you see that Jonah is being eaten by this big whale, or he's like half half eaten by the whale, or he's maybe he's, he's stepping out of the whale. And then on the other side is the whole depiction of Jesus stepping out of, of the tomb. And so it's the resurrection. And these two stories were meant to go together in a certain way. It's like the prefiguration of what will happen later on in the resurrection. So just as Jonah had been a prisoner of, of this monster, this huge whale, and finally was able to escape and start a new life, because that's also the beginning of you know, him finding back his faith, in the same way Christ is stepping out of this tomb that held him prisoner in darkness for three days, only to start a new life in a certain way. And we have to follow Jesus in that 
in that movement. So Christian life starts with baptism because it's in a certain way dying to your old life. And then and that's why the sacrament of baptism involves water. It reminds us of this of what 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 John the Baptist was doing in the River Jordan. It's like wash away your old life and being reborn just like Jesus himself was baptized there in, in the River Jordan. We follow him in that same movement. We too are baptized. And we too are following Jesus in this new life that hopefully will be this eternal life where love is the key. And love is what motivates us and motivates each and every one of our decisions. Uh, all right, that's enough. <laughs> Let's move on to the next segment. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? I think last week I already spoke a bit about uh, me reading this book. After reading two books that were very disappointing, if you want to uh, hear my reviews, uh, check out uh, last week's episode or, or check out my Goodreads profile. Um, it, I, was, I started to read a book a book, a science fiction novel that I really liked, and now I finished it a few days later. It's written by Blake Crouch, who was the author of the Wayward Pines trilogy, which is a fantastic trilogy of books that I, I highly recommend because it's such a riveting story. Um, this book is called Dark Matter, and it's one of his best-selling science fiction novels. I've, I've had it on my list for, for years now. I think I started reading this in 2018, according to Goodreads. I only now finished it. And I don't understand why it took me so long to finish this book, because I read it literally in one day. I couldn't stop turning the pages. That's how good it was. And it's actually surprisingly modern. I mean, nowadays, every franchise seems to be about the multiverse right spider-man and we've got the multiverse of course in um uh the the mat the universe of madness like dr strange and now uh, apparently the dc is also doing multiverse stuff with the uh, upcoming flash movie so right now it seems to be almost overused this whole concept of the multiverse um but it's also the the main story thread here in in dark matter where uh, it's a story about a guy who um, who is a teacher and he he kind of missed out on his career um, I think I also mentioned this last week uh, because he wanted to start a family um, and then he is abducted and in ways I won't explain. Uh, for fear of, of spoiling, he ends up in a in the multiverse, and so he goes from through he makes his journey through all these different variations of reality, trying to to return to his former life. And the the way the story is told is super cool. I mean, it's as if I've watched a movie. That's how good it is. It's it's um, that's a hallmark of of Blake Crouch's writing style. You read a any of his novels you feel like you've seen it and and i think that's a very good quality of a writer um but it also doesn't shy away from very fundamental questions you know if there is a multiverse what does it mean for my unicity for my soul what actually constitutes my life and makes it unique you know why is my life better than that of one of the 
variations of my of my life. Um, and I think it handles that question in a in a very personal way that makes you think also about your own life. Uh, because we all, in a certain way, the whole idea of multiverses, I think, is because we, we often wonder that ourselves. Uh, you know, what if I would have taken this road in my life? There have been moments in everyone's life where you had to make a choice. Either I do this or I do that. I choose this job or that job. I go left or I go right. What if I would have gone left? I would have never met these persons. I would have never gone through these experiences. This is also true for bad experiences, for, for nasty stuff that happens in your life. It still made you the, what you are today. Would you trade it for some other version that, that may exist in some other multiverse? But, but then would that still be you? Would you miss your, your own self? Questions like that. Um, uh, dark matter... Um, I think does a great job at doing what, what science fiction is actually meant to do, and that is to show us a mirror of our life, uh, of our choices, and, and makes you think about, you know, what makes you, you. Highly recommended. It's, it's a page-turner. I just love that book. I love um, everything about it. <laughs> Quick, uh, a quick visit to my kitchen. Two days ago, I, I made bagels for the first time. I saw a short video of um, an American chef who now lives in Amsterdam. Uh, or no, not in Amsterdam, in Maastricht, in the south of the country. And she does these vlogs where she talks about her uh, experiences as a uh, chef in the Netherlands, but also sometimes funny comparisons like, I, I can't believe what these Dutch people do. So it's, it's very entertaining to watch. But, and sometimes there are recipes. And so she had a very simple recipe to make bagels. And um, once I saw it and how, saw how easy it was, I just had to make them. It only involves three ingredients. You need um, self-rising flour. That's dirt cheap. I just bought a kilo for 99 cents. So even though with all the inflation, that's still as cheap as it was three years ago. Um, you need Greek yogurt. I, I use the low-fat variant, but it doesn't really matter. Um, it for, uh, she uses Greek yogurt because it adds um, uh, protein to your bagels, which, of course, has, has the side effect of filling you up. Um, so I used the, the non-fat or low-fat variant of, of Greek yogurt. And then you need one egg. And that's just to make egg wash. And, oh, I forgot. You can also, and that's optional, add, like, seeds. Or uh, she used something I've seen a lot in American cooking videos. It's, like, everything but the bagel. So it's, like, a mixture of seeds and salt and maybe dried onion or stuff like that. I, I, I looked it up. I can't get it anywhere in the Netherlands. It's, it's just not something that we're familiar with. Also, because bagels are relatively, you know, it's not a staple thing here for breakfast or lunch. Uh, there is a, a shop called, or actually a chain of stores or shops called Bagels and Beans. That's where you get bagels and coffee. Um, there is one in, in Wageningen, but usually that's pretty expensive. So, I was like, if I only need self-rising flour and Greek yogurt, yeah, that's cheap enough for me to try. So basically what you do is you take um, 
a cup and a half or two cups of self-rising flour, one cup of Greek yogurt, and you mix that together until it becomes a dough. Um, if your hands are still too, you know, like covered in, in, in dough, it's too, it's too liquid, you add uh, more flour. And then once it's a, it, it's a, a kneadable dough, uh, you make these rolls, um, the kind of sausages, thick sausages, and you turn them into circles. Now, because it's self-rising flour, it depends on the type of self-rising flour. Some of it can really rise a lot in the oven, and then it would, if, if the hole in the center is too small, you don't get that specific uh, uh, bagel form. So I made sure that I, I made a big circle in the middle. In hindsight, a little bit too big, but um, and and then the entire bagel was uh, I should have used a bit more dough, uh, so made the whole thing a bit thicker. But this was a test. You so you roll it into circles and then you um, use egg wash, which is just an egg, and you add some water and then you uh, coat the top of the bagel with that uh, with that egg wash, and then I added some sesame seeds. I did have sesame seeds, so I. I wanted it to look nice. So added some sesame seeds, put it in a preheated oven uh, at about 180 degrees Celsius. I don't know how much that is in Fahrenheit. And you leave it in there for about, I think I left it for about 20 minutes. I kept an eye on it because of the egg wash. It can get very dark brown. I want it to be kind of like golden brown. And then I took it out of the oven. It was super hot, um, but it it did have the... The, the right shape and everything. It took me so long that I couldn't eat it for breakfast anymore. So I, I let it cool down. And for lunch, I cut the bagels in half and put them uh, in the air fryer to toast them, to lightly toast them. Air fryers are fantastic for toasting. <laughs> and so then I added cream cheese and I did have some leftover salmon. So the, like the uh, smoked salmon. And it was fantastic. I was so happy. Because it, it felt like a delicacy. This is something I would normally just buy in a, in a bakery or, you know, at, at Bagels and Beans. But now I just made it in my own kitchen and it was so simple and it was so enjoyable that I'm going to do it again. And I have to say, with the protein, I only ate two bagels and they were relatively small, but I wasn't hungry for the rest of the day. So it worked perfectly as a lunch meal that kept me full until dinner time. And that's probably because there was much more protein in those bagels than you would get in, in regular bagels. So highly recommended. Go try it out. And if you have any additional tips for bagels, uh, some of you are, are very um, uh, experienced in the kitchen with this kind of baking stuff, then let me know. Uh, if you're one of my patrons, you know that we have a kitchen segment on the, on the Discord server. So uh, I'd love to hear your, your bagel tips. <laughs> We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. Speaking of cutting edge technology, VR is in in my opinion still cutting edge technology but it still doesn't really take off and uh, there there are every year there are new attempts to make it mainstream 
but it's also cost prohibitive. And it's, again, the chicken and the egg. If not enough people have a, a VR system, developers won't develop for it. So that's even the problem right now with the PSVR 2, which is the, the virtual system for uh, the PlayStation 5. I had the first version, which I thought was really good, but so clunky, so big and complicated to uh, to to make it work. You needed to have a camera mounted on your television. It was really the prehistoric dawn of VR. But once you got it working, it was pretty spectacular. Downside, none of those games that were developed at the time are compatible with the new version of that system, PSVR 2, that came out just a few weeks ago. And again, same problem. It's a lot better than the first system. Um, the software is, of course, because this thing is tethered to a PlayStation 5, you can have really good quality games, much more than you could have in a standalone solution like the Oculus Quest, or I should say the Meta Quest, which uh, needs to have its its graphics chip inside the the standalone headset, so it can't it can't be too good because it would consume too much energy. This is one of the main reasons that Apple has been postponing their AR VR solution for many years because they felt that the 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 technology isn't there yet. I mean, it's it's easy to put out something mediocre, and to a certain extent, the Meta Quest One and Quest Two were successful because they were so cheap. But that was because Facebook was investing so much money; they basically gave away the hardware for free um, because they felt that you know this is going to be the ne big next thing. Um, but what you actually got was, I mean, it worked. I still really like to use the Quest from time to time, but the graphics are so primitive compared to what we can even do on a, on a phone right now. Well, apparently technology has caught up quite a bit and, and Apple is going to give us their their version of this device in, uh, in June during the WWDC conference. Um, and that's just going to be the very expensive first iteration and then, of course, once they get developers, and th th this is this is the big game they play, they've been working on the software tools for years. Every iPhone can do AR, but it was just on a phone. Who is going to use AR on a phone? But that wasn't what Apple wanted to happen. They just wanted the software to be very developed and to to give developers the time to play around with all these AR uh, development tools so that if they would launch their goggles, there would be thousands of developers working for uh, the, the success of this big new thing. This is something that Meta, I think, underestimated. They thought, you know, as long as we just keep giving away these, these headsets, developers will follow. But then they didn't have a nice transition between the Quest 1 and the Quest 2. So people had to rebuy the games. And that's the same thing with with uh, the Sony PlayStation. If you now have the place, the PSVR 2, you have to rebuy the games because the games that you bought for the previous iteration don't work on the new glass. Fool me once, fool me twice. You know, at one point people will just stop believing in this. And so I think that Apple, especially if they can tie this to one of their services, which I think is also part of their master plan, 
you know, they're just going to integrate VR games into their gaming service, which not many people use now because, it, you know, why, why would you? There's so many, so many other alternatives. You, you can have the Game Pass. There is, um, I think NVIDIA has a similar service. There, there's a lot of competition. And Nintendo has their paid service for games. But Apple can win this market because that would be the only place to get access to all this VR stuff. So if they succeed in bringing us cheaper versions in the future based on the technology that they're going to present us in June, I think in the long run, they will win this. Meta is following suit in a certain way. They still want, they need this to work for them. They need people to continue buying the, the, the Meta Quest goggles for years to come. And so they have also now announced that, that th this year we will get the, the Meta Quest 3, which will be a lot lighter, like half the thickness of the original uh, Meta Quest 1 and 2, which were you know, like similar devices in terms of size. Um, but their, their big... Um, their goal for 2024 is to then bring a product for the masses. So the MetaQuest 3 is probably going to be expensive. Just as expensive as the 2, maybe even more expensive. So it's going to be more than 500 bucks because that's kind of the, the threshold price right now for the MetaQuest 2. But then next year, they want to make that super affordable. And then they hope that they are still, that they still have their lead so they can conquer the world but then apple will have entered the arena so are they going to win this i think ultimately the hardware is now leading but it's just like with phones when apple gave us the iphone everybody started to imitate it, to imitate the iphone it took them years to catch up with the the lead that apple had in terms of hardware but it's no longer about the hardware a lot of phones have fantastic cameras and, and wonderful software, but it's all about the applications, it's about the unique things that you can do with the iPhone uh, and, and the ecosystem. So the whole, the, the way in which all these Apple devices work together, that is something that you cannot imitate unless you control the entire ecosystem that people have tapped into. So this is where Apple is able to maintain its lead. And I think they're going to do the same with their VR, AR solution. It's going to work and tie in with the existing Apple environment so that people that already um, take part in that, in that universe, <laughs> it will feel like this is natural. It's like the, uh, the Apple Watch. Once you see how it works together with all the rest, you understand that, yeah, no, I cannot get another watch. I need to have an Apple Watch. And I think they're going to do the same thing with AR, VR. Is that going to dominate the market? I don't think so. Because a lot of people are not part of the Apple world and Apple universe. So they, they can choose other things. For them, maybe the meta or, or Chinese companies will come with, uh, will, will bring us new, new solutions that are a lot cheaper. I like it that we get so many different variations. And it will take a couple of years for this technology to really become mainstream. 
But I don't think that they, that we can stop this. This is not like three D televisions, and all of a sudden it's going to disappear. No, I, I think the investments have to be have been too substantial. Plus, the unique extra value, the practical value that you can get from a good AR system, I think is is way beyond the gimmick factor of like three D TVs. That's what I think. But we'll have to wait and see. And with that, ladies and gentlemen. It is high time to wrap things up. Thank you for the privilege of your time. As usual, I want to end with uh, some food for thought. A quote this time by St. Catherine of Siena. I went to Siena last summer and I visited the, the, the place where she has lived as a young girl and later on also when they build a convent there. She's been a very influential person in the, I think, late medieval times very courageous uh, woman and this is her quote if you are what you should be you will set the world ablaze if you are what you should be then you will set the whole world ablaze St. Catherine did that herself she, she found her vocation she listened to what God wanted her to do and her role in church history has been undervalued, as often is the case with strong women in the history of mankind. But nevertheless, the church, and I would dare say the world wouldn't be the same without what she has done for the church. More about that in my upcoming documentary about the history of Tuscany. <laughs> One of these months. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. God bless.